Welcome to the Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist, strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you a guest from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guest is Dr. William Darity. Dr. Darity is the Samuel Dubois Cook Professor of Public Policy, African and African-American Studies and Economics, and the Director of the Samuel Dubois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke University. He has served as Chair of the Department of African and African-American Studies and was the Founding Director of the Research Network on Racial and Ethnic Inequality at Duke. I'm really excited to have this conversation. I'm really happy and excited to welcome you to the show. So thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me on, Phil. I mean, we have a lot to go through. I've kind of shown you the extent of note-taking that I've done in preparation for this. But what I really want to start on is obviously there's been a, a huge conversation around reparations. You have a book that you've written, co-written with your wife that's going to be coming out in 2020. You've written and spoken extensively on this topic. So a lot of our conversation will obviously be spent on the issue of reparations and wealth inequality as it pertains to African-Americans. But I do want to set up a little bit of frame in my thinking and how I came to this particular conversation. So I think this idea of reparations is reinvigorated in the public sphere, but it's been in my life for a long time, only through pop culture, through political and social meanderings. But I think now we've reached a new space of published consciousness around the issues of reparations, even though many people, yourself included, have worked on this topic through economics, through public policy, through politics for decades. And so when I think about this conversation, I think of your work, particularly the research piece that was published, What We Get Wrong About Closing the Wealth Gap. I think about ta Coates' essay, The Case for Reparations, and also another piece that I'll cite, which is Ryan Cooper and Matt Bruning's work called The Foreclosed, Destruction of the Black Wealth During the Obama Presidency. So when I'm giving people like primers as to how they should think about reparations, I lead with those three documents of which you're a principal part of one of them. And like I said, have been engaged in this work for a very long time. So that's a lot of me setting the stage, but now I want to give you an opportunity to kind of maybe talk about how wealth inequality so specifically is tied to the case for reparations. My position may be a bit unusual on this, but I view racial wealth inequality in the United States as a fundamental index of the cumulative effects of the atrocities that have been visited on black Americans. And so from that perspective, the racial wealth gap is providing us with a quantitative measure of the impact of the entire trajectory of racial injustice in the United States. It's perhaps not the only quantitative measure that's available to us, but it is definitely a significant one. And the racial wealth gap in the United States, the black-white wealth gap, is so substantial that we would definitely have a vast amount of beneficial effects by eliminating that gap, by raising the black wealth level to an equivalent status 
with the white wealth level in the United States. So as a consequence, I have increasingly said that that should be a priority for a program of reparations is to eliminate the racial wealth gap. And I want to be clear, it's eliminate the racial pre-tax wealth gap because I could envision a situation in which we close the wealth gap exclusively by taxing away the highest levels of net worth in, in the United States. We don't have a wealth tax at the moment, but that certainly is a possibility. So from my perspective, what needs to be done is to raise the asset base that's available to black Americans so that we eliminate racial wealth differences. And when you participate in the research piece, you know, what we get wrong about closing the wealth gap, right? There's so much in that that diffuses or sort of debunks these popular ideas as to why there is a wealth gap in the first place. And I want to walk through a little bit of that because I think it's essential to telling the full story because I think most people don't really comprehend how significant this gap is. And so maybe it's useful to kind of give listeners maybe a primer as to some of these key statistics that just really jump out to explain the stark differences between what Black people, Black Americans have, and what is the kind of the existing numbers for white Americans? So I think most people begin by looking at the comparison between the median level of net worth between Black and white households. And by the median, I mean the typical Black or white household at the middle of each racial group's distribution of wealth. So we can talk about the middle household. And the middle Black household has according to the 2016 survey of consumer finances from the Federal Reserve Board, the middle black household has about $17,600 in net worth. Or by net worth, I mean the difference between the value of their assets and their debts. In contrast, the middle white household has $171,000 in net worth. So that the magnitude of the median differential is approaching $100,000 or more. In fact, I guess it's closer to $150,000. But the median doesn't capture the entire scope of the differential in black and white wealth because the median level of wealth that's held by the middle white household is only, up to the middle white household, is only about 3% of all of the wealth that is held by white Americans. In fact, 97% of the wealth that is held by white Americans is in the possession of households that have a net worth above the middle of the distribution of all wealth for, for white Americans. And so if we're concerned about eliminating the racial wealth gap, we have to pay attention to that large portion of white wealth that is held above the middle white household. And so instead, I argue, we need to actually consider the mean gap, the average gap in wealth between the two communities. And that average wealth gap is computed by looking at the fact that the mean wealth level for a black household is about $138,000, and the mean level for white households is about $933,000. So it's close to an $800,000 differential. And that's the gap that I think should be the focus of a reparations program. Now, it's really interesting, and I'm a stickler for definitions, 
people who know me are annoyed by this often, but I lean into it. And I think you make a very clear distinction in your work between wealth and income. But many people use those terms interchangeably. So if we can, let's walk through a little bit of how you distinguish between wealth and income and why that is so germane to these types of conversations. That's a key issue. We just completed a study in conjunction with a psychologist at Duke. We just completed a study that demonstrates that people typically do not make a distinction between income and wealth. In fact, they usually conceive of income as wealth. And when they refer to rich people or wealthy people, they're frequently referring to people who have very high incomes. But the significance of the distinction is the following. Income is primarily a flow of resources that families or individuals receive in a given span of time. Frequently, we think about income as a flow of resources that you receive in a year. And the year is usually the period of time that we utilize for trying to measure how much a household or an individual receives. And income is primarily driven for most people by their earnings in the labor market. And so obviously, if you don't have any labor market earnings, you will not necessarily have any income. Or if you have a very low level of labor market earnings, then you typically will have a very low level of income. The exception to that are individuals who may not be at work or who are working with a fairly low stream of income, but who have a stock of resources that we would refer to as wealth, which is the net value of their personal property. It's the difference between what they own and what they owe. And this is different from income because it's actually a store of value that an individual can carry through time that they don't necessarily receive as a flow in a given period of time. Most significant from the perspective of the work that we've done is the fact that the source of that stock of resources of wealth or net worth for many, many individuals is primarily what they receive across generations. Intergenerational transfers that either take the form of inheritances or take the form of what we refer to as in vivo transfers, which is just a fancy Latin phrase for gifts that occur when the donor is still living. And so I think that there's a tendency to overestimate the significance of inheritances and to underestimate the significance of gifts, in part because the gifts can frequently occur at times that are critical for the path of wealth accumulation for members of a younger generation. The amounts may typically be smaller than the amounts of an inheritance, but those amounts are well-targeted. An example might be an individual who manages to finish college without any significant amount of student debt, particularly if their college experience was financed by their parents. Another example is a high school student who receives a car upon graduation. That's a gift, and it's a gift that can be extremely useful to that individual in terms of working at a job during the summer before they actually go to college. It could be the case that parents or grandparents provide the younger generation with funds for a down payment on a home. And so facilitating their capacity to obtain a mortgage and obtain a mortgage at a, a more manageable interest rate. So all of those things are gifts. We don't necessarily think about them as something special 
because frequently people say, oh, well, that's just what parents do. But there are a huge number of parents who don't have the resources to enable them to provide those sorts of gifts. And what we do is we set up a fork in the road between individuals who have those advantages of what is essentially an inherited form of advantage versus individuals who don't. And the lines in that fork in the road are drawn differentially by race. And they're drawn differentially by race because there's been a historical difference in the amount of resources that black parents have had the capacity to transfer to their sons and daughters. Now, that historical piece, I think it's a it's a good fork for us to kind of maybe go back a little bit. And in the same way that wealth and income are often terms used interchangeably, I think the understanding of the impact of enslaved people coming out of the Civil War is also one of those things, not as widely known as perhaps it should be, in the sense that many people will argue, well, we'll use terms, and I'm being somewhat flippant in this, they'll say, oh, slavery was a long time ago, or, you know, my grandparents or my parents didn't own slaves or any number of things that sort of discount that history. And what I'd like to do is walk through a little bit of that history, which I tend to put in three buckets. Obviously, you have the actual years of enslavement, you have Reconstruction, and then the sort of legal structure of Jim Crow, which ended, you know, as Chris Rock jokes, whenever the white people in your neighborhood became cool, right? Um, But officially, maybe it ended in like 1964, 1968. But, you know, we'll use Chris's joke as just a little a little bit of lightness on a heavy on a heavy topic. Right? Subject. <laughs> yeah. So wherever wherever you live, when white well, people got well, cool, that's well, when it was over. <laughs> well, I, w- I would add that this process of cumulative injustice also extends into the period after the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So I would actually say that there are three phases mm-hmm. that I would focus on, and the first is, of course, the period of enslavement. The second is the Jim Crow era that you mentioned, and I would include the period of Reconstruction in that era because the foundation for Jim Crow was placed by white terrorism during the course of the Reconstruction era. And then the third phase would be the period after legal segregation, post the mid-1960s, in which we still have atrocities that resonate for wealth inequality as well. So maybe I should talk about what I see as Mm -hmm. the history of how the racial wealth gap has evolved. Yeah. So if we if we start with the period of slavery, black people generally were property, but they did not have access to property. And that created a situation where at the end of the Civil War, the best estimates that I've seen is that black Americans had about one percent of the nation's wealth, but were closer to 15% of the nation's population. So there's a huge disproportion between the wealth that black Americans had as a share of the nation's total wealth versus their share in the nation's population. So that has changed. That figure has changed. If we were to think about it from a percentage change standpoint, we might conclude that there has been a tremendous change in the black share and wealth. But 
Today, it's about 2.6% of the nation's wealth. And that looks like a big change relative to 1%, but that's because 1% was so negligible. In the aftermath of the Civil War, there was actually a conscious effort to try to address this enormous wealth gap. And that effort was embodied in the promise of 40-acre land grants to the formerly enslaved. Unfortunately, that promise was never fulfilled. The process of provision of those land grants began with the execution of a special order that was issued by General Sherman when he was on the Georgia coast, where essentially he assigned a territory stretching from South Carolina into northern Florida to the freedmen as a territory that would provide them with an initial stake in American wealth in the form of these land grants. But Andrew Johnson, Abraham Lincoln's successor, reversed that policy and restored the lands to the former slaveholders. And I would argue that that's the point in which the modern racial wealth gap begins. Okay. With the failure to provide the formerly enslaved with a land stake that would have completely altered the trajectory of wealth accumulation by race in the United States. So to compound matters during the Jim Crow period, we also had a situation in which there was a series of massacres that took place in a variety of communities in the United States, both North and South, that involved the killing of black folks, but also involved the either the destruction or the appropriation of their property. Perhaps the most dramatic example that people are now learning about, in part because of the TV program, The Watchmen, yep. is the 1921 Tulsa Massacre, in which a prosperous black community that was referred to as a black Wall Street was literally razed to the ground. And that's R-A-Z-E-D, uh, <laughs> to the ground. And so there were upwards of 40 to 50 of these types of massacres that took place. This was also in conjunction with a wave of lynchings, where frequently the individual who was lynched was somebody whose property was seized afterwards, taken into the control and possession of whites. So there was a long period of destruction of black access to property that took place even after the promise 40 acres was not provided. So what black folks had accumulated by dint of their own efforts often was taken away from them. And then in the 20th century, we have had a strong, strong focus on building wealth through home ownership and home equity. But there are national policies that went into play that had the effect of denying blacks uh, a comparable opportunity to become homeowners or to build significant equity in their homes. Those national policies begin with the acceptance as a legal practice initially of restrictive covenants. But after restrictive covenants are declared illegal, the federal government sets up a system with the private banks of redlining throughout the entire United States. So people typically think about redlining exclusively in the context of Chicago, but it was a national phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, I live in North Carolina, and there is an extensive history of redlining in United States. So this is a consequence of a federal policy. It's not a local policy per se. Mm-hmm. Then to compound matters, In the aftermath of World War II, the GI Bill was introduced, but it was discriminatorily applied so that 
tremendous amount of authority was given to local individuals, particularly white individuals, to make a decision about which veterans would receive the benefits of the GI Bill. And in the South, the differential receipt of benefits from the GI Bill was very pronounced. And this affected people's access to a fully paid college education, and it also affected their access to support for home mortgages. And so, for example, in the state of Mississippi, I understand what I've learned is there were two black veterans in total who received some benefit from the GI Bill. We know Mississippi is typically the worst on many of these things, but uh, yeah, they, they just, are number, they are number you, one at being the worst. <laughs> yeah, but that tells you how extreme the situation was for us to have a state where there were only two black men who received benefits from the GI Bill. And so, so now, after the passage of the Civil Rights Act, we have a situation in which we have mass incarceration. And of course, incarcerated individuals, well, incarcerated individuals are going to have extreme difficulties in accumulating wealth, Mm -hmm. particularly while they're incarcerated. But then there are stigma effects that are associated with their post-incarceration experience that make things difficult as well. And then, of course, if these are black folks, they're coming from a community where they're unlikely to have received any significant amount of wealth from their parents in the first place. So we've got mass incarceration. We've got police lynchings or executions of unarmed blacks. We've got ongoing credit, housing and employment discrimination. And so all of those factors continue to create a momentum that pushes the wedge further between black and white wealth. And then I think the last thing that I should mention in this context is that a significant amount of wealth growth has occurred for individuals who already were wealthy, particularly if they were able to invest significantly in the stock market, because over the past 40 to 50 years, there's been a tremendous growth in the value of assets that are traded on our national stock exchanges. I actually refer to that as kind of paper capitalism or fictitious capital, as as Rudolf Hilferding might call it. But that has meant substantial wealth for individuals who already started out with the capacity to invest significantly in the stock market. And so all of these things coming together perpetuate the racial wealth gap. And in light of all of these reasons that are historical, they are systemic and ongoing. Why do you think it is these myths around why the wealth gap, the racial wealth gap exists are so persistent in the sense that you and others, but us in this conversation have laid out historical reasons that are political and social, financial and commercial reasons, issues around systemic violence, but yet these mythologies are persistent, and I would say they cross racial lines. There's many Black people who believe these myths as well, right? That there's some personal defect, as in we don't work hard enough, or we don't value education, or any number of different things. We're more consumerist in our buying habits. We don't save enough, or, you know, the list goes on, right? Why are those ideas so persistent? So I actually, I think in a somewhat twisted way, it's both a matter of pride and optimism. 
mm-hmm. and unrealistic optimism. But I think that folks who take the view that there's some behavior that black folks can change with their existing resources that could lead to an elimination of the racial wealth gap is predicated on their desire to also believe that black folks can change the world with their own actions autonomously. It would be nice if this were the case, because then black folks would not have to rely in any way on an external agent like the federal government to alter their position significantly. But I think it's a misplaced pride. I would say that black folks ought to have a tremendous amount of pride in what we have accomplished in light of the obstacles that we have faced. But I also don't believe that it's possible for black Americans to eliminate the racial wealth gap through any autonomous behavior that we undertake given our existing level of wealth or resources. So there has to be a massive intervention that takes place to alter the wealth position of black Americans that is something that occurs independently of the kinds of decisions black folks make individually about how much to save, how much to spend, whether to buy black, whether not to buy black, whether to become part to the extent that people can control this, of a two-parent family rather than a one-parent family, how much education to obtain. All of those things are things that it's become increasingly clear. When black folks do what we might assert is the right thing, they don't get the same level of wealth as whites. And so there's something that's way beyond the control of our individual decisions and individual behavior. And these are the structural factors that make the racial wealth gap so mammoth. And those are the structural factors that need to be changed, and they have to be changed by government policy. I've read a book a while ago by historian Tony Jute, and he wrote a book called Postwar, A History of Europe After World War II. Um, I'm paraphrasing the subtitle, but that's the gist of it. And what struck me in in this book was as much as, you know, the greatest generation, World War II, it's very heavily marketed. The History Channel wouldn't exist without it. Um, (laughs) But but nonetheless, I was reading his book. I was even as someone who's into that stuff, I was still like blown away by the amount of displacement of human beings in Europe, Western, what became Western Europe and Eastern Europe post-World War II and what it took to get people even remotely back to where they were in 1930, you know, 1933 before bombs started dropping, right? Or rather 1939, rather. So I say all that to say that, you know, we had something like the Marshall Plan, right? So let's use greatest generation lexicon. They love this stuff, right? So it sounds like reparations has the capability to be a Marshall Plan, right? It's saying that we need to do something that is systemic because the personal choices are not going to be enough, right? That if you were displaced from your home in 1945, your grit isn't enough to get you a thousand miles home, right? Like you need a Marshall plan (laughs) to kind of- I mean, mean, of course, of course, there's some individuals who do extraordinarily well under adverse circumstances. Oh yeah, of course. But if we're thinking about 
the typical experience of most white and most black folks. A lot of our outcomes are really dictated simply by the fact of which families we've been born into. And uh, if we think about this as a society that ostensibly values merit and equal opportunity, then our personal outcome should not be a consequence of the resources and opportunities that our parents have had. But that's how it works right now. So, you know, I'm thinking that the idea of something that parallels the dramatic intervention that's associated with a Marshall Plan would be most appropriate for addressing the racial wealth gap. And you've testified in in front of Congress on this. You've written extensively as to what a reparations plan could look like. And in the beginning of this conversation, you mentioned that closing this wealth gap is something that is a benefit to everyone. Right. That, yes, it directly well, impacts. Well, no, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure about that. You, okay. You're saying it's a benefit to all Americans? I thought I heard that, but I could have not heard that. So I don't think I said that. Okay. I don't think I said that. Okay. Because uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the consequences would be for all Americans. I know that the McKinsey group has a report that they put out recently where they, they made the claim that closing the racial wealth gap would increase the American rate of economic growth. And so that presumably it would be beneficial to everyone. Now, they talk about closing the racial wealth gap at the media, not at the mean. Mm -hmm. And I'm just not absolutely sure what the full effects would be. I don't think we've actually modeled that adequately to make any kind of accurate prediction. I will say this, in the work that I've done, and I can't tell you too much because this would give away what's in the final chapter of our book. But in the work that I've done, we have tried to think about how you might finance a dramatic reparations program without increasing tax rates. Okay. So, yeah. So I'm hopeful that you could design a reparations program so that there would not be a significant cost to any American individually. On the other hand, I can't make the claim without learning more, thinking more about this, about what the effects of such a uh, program would be on the U.S. economy writ large. I don't know. Why do you think the conversation of reparations has sort of reached this, like I said in the beginning, it's, it's kind of reached what I think is a fairly general population conversation. When I was coming up, I went to Howard, I you know started at Howard in 1990, right? And to use that kind of pop culture, hip hop references, like, you know, Reparations has always been talked about, I think, in the Black community, but it has not been discussed broadly in the larger community. But now we're seeing a moment where, you know, Democratic candidates are talking about this on primary stages, you know, maybe not extensively, but they're at least being asked, where do you stand on this? Even someone like Thomas Friedman wrote a a piece in the New York Times saying that the time is come, right? Not exactly a, you know, stalwart progressive. And I'm (laughs) being kind in that, right? David Brooks. Yeah, David Brooks is who I meant, not even Tom. David Brooks has said that, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. yeah. I I was stunned, actually, when I read that piece, although he doesn't talk specifically about what the scope and magnitude of a reparations program, but 
it was actually surprising that he endorsed the idea. Yeah, so it's in yeah. the zeitgeist. And why do you think we've reached this zeitgeist moment, you know, where we're having these types of conversations? Could you indulge me in talking a little bit about what I see as the historical path of reparations in the United States? I'm all about indulging. Okay, thanks. That's, that's why we're here. Yeah. The, show, the show is called The Deep Dive. All right. So actually, you know, prior to the Civil War, there have been a number of instances in which people actually talked about the idea of reparations. And in most cases, the idea was linked to the provision of land to folks after slavery ended. I mean, we can even go back to Thomas Paine at the point of the formation of the Republic, where Paine's view was the United States should come into existence without slavery, and there should be reparations in the form of land grants provided to the folks who, from his perspective, would have been the formerly enslaved. Well, that didn't happen. But during the course of the period of enslavement, there also were calls for the equivalent of a reparations program, again, focused on land. And then, as we've talked about a few minutes ago, in the aftermath of the Civil War, you had the expectation that the formerly enslaved would receive specifically 40-acre land grants. And again, that didn't happen. The next phase of substantial reparations activity is largely associated with the efforts of a woman named Callie House. Mary Frances Berry has done a superb biography of Callie House called My Face is Black is True. And Callie House was a woman who made her income by taking in laundry. She was actually relatively poor because that frequently was not a particularly lucrative line of work, but that was what was available to her. And she somehow became the central figure in an effort to get pensions for the formerly enslaved. And so the pensions were to constitute, in effect, some form of restitution for their experience of being enslaved. You know, since they did not have formal employment while they were enslaved and were not paid, there was no capacity for them to accumulate any resources for their old age. And so the idea here was that the federal government would provide them pensions. Mm -hmm. Callie House's effort was ultimately destroyed, and it was destroyed in the same way in which Marcus Garvey's efforts were subsequently destroyed by bringing her down with mail fraud charges. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the trick bag that was was used to deal with black activists who actually were, were very committed to the reparations effort. The successor to House and to Garvey's movements was a woman named Queen Mother Audley Moore. And Queen Mother Audley Moore is actually the individual who brought the case for reparations to the United Nations for black American reparations. And so there, as you said, there's kind of a long tradition in the black community of thinking about this, but there actually have been social movements. Queen Mother Audley Moore's efforts, I think, were succeeded by the National Coalition on Reparations for Black Americans, what's known by the acronym as ENCOBRA. And ENCOBRA played a key role in the development and design of John Conyers's House Resolution 40, which was designed to establish a commission to study reparations and to propose a reparations plan. That took place in 1989. 
And there was no hearing on H.R. 40 until this past summer on June 18th. And I think that a lot of the activism around reparations now centers on social media activism, Mm -hmm. in particular, the activism of individuals who now refer to themselves as ADOs or American descendants of slavery. So the interesting point is that there was no hearing until this past summer. So what's going on now that has led to this change where we actually are having more of a conversation about reparations at the national level than we have had since the Reconstruction era? And I don't have a wonderful answer to that. I have some thoughts and some speculations, but I don't really have a good answer. And I I have to confess, I I think I've been as surprised as most people Mm -hmm. that reparations now has become an object of discussion for presidential candidates. Even if they don't endorse it, they actually use the term. And that's really, really quite surprising to me. I don't know. I think that maybe the visibility of police executions of unarmed blacks has had an effect. Again, circulated through social media. We actually get these kinds of images in very real time now, very quickly. And I think that that's had an effect. I think a lot of people you know, immediately have recognized that there's something deeply unjust about how, how those uh, executions have taken place. I think that There may be uh, an effect from the Trump presidency, which may have prompted some elements in the Democratic Party to seek far bolder and transformative policies than were considered, say, during the Obama years. And among those policies, I think reparations has become a talking point of some form. So it, it may be in part a reaction to the Trump presidency. But beyond that, I don't really have a, a very good explanation. I mean, I, I think it could be any number of those things. I know for sort of the liberal class, you know, Ta-Nehisi's essay was the first time this case was laid out for them, right? Yeah. Like yeah. those readers of the Atlantic Monthly in 2014 cracked it and were like, what is this, right? And I think right. the, the power and, and, and eloquence of prose... And I think one of the one of the most important dimensions of that article is the fact that the emphasis was not on slavery as the atrocity. The emphasis was on 20th century federal policies that made it possible for phenomena like contract selling of homes to take place in such a way that people had really fragile access to home ownership. Mm-hmm. They didn't actually own homes if they had bought under contract. The The contractor actually continued to own the home, and you could only gain ownership after you completed payment. And if you missed a single payment, ownership would revert fully to, to the contractor. You could not build equity in your homes under those conditions. And you couldn't do otherwise if you wanted to be a homeowner because of the credit restrictions for black home buyers that were established by the federal redlining program. So that was the focus of Tanasi's article, and I think it was very significant in trying to bring home the point that there are a number of historical injustices mm-hmm. that took place after slavery was was over. Yeah, I want to get to 
Eidos if I could and have a conversation there. But And I think the fact that we've referenced them already and then ta piece making that kind of Jim Crow argument is an interesting way to kind of segue. And I'll get to the why. You know, I'm someone who just full disclosure, my parents are West Indian. My mom's from Barbados. My dad's from Guyana. I'm the first one from my family born here. And some of the pushback on these ideas in the social media space has been this idea that, you know, this potential for reparations excludes the diaspora. It would not include people like myself, which I'm fine with. So there's not a personal argument um, this is part <laughs> of a policy conversation. So I'm curious about some of the language that is used in social media spaces that is not the conversation you and I are having here, but it is more divisive and it is framed in very anti-immigrant language. So I'm curious as to how in this idea of having political imagination, recognizing the historical legacy of these things, but yet not devolving the conversation in a way that is problematic. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious to kind of fish around in those waters and get you know, find a way through that, because I, I think it is a real thing. So um, in the social media space, there have been exchanges that I think are brilliant, and there have been exchanges that I think are terrible mm -hmm. from folks who are speaking on both sides of this. Mm -hmm. I don't know if the, the best way for me to talk about this is to explain how I personally frame it, but if that's maybe useful, like I can try to do that. Sure. But I, I do want to make it clear that I absolutely I'm absolutely disturbed by and I reject much of the language of animus that appears in social media. So, yeah. So, yeah. We all so, should. Yes, yes, absolutely. absolutely. Socialism, I mean, I mean, social media is wonderful and horrible at the same time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. So, so my way of thinking about this is that diasporized black people have distinctive ethnic identities. Mm -hmm. I mean, you just mentioned your own yeah. path of ancestry. And so the way in which I interpreted Eidos, at least when it initially emerged, was an assertion, and it's not an assertion that was made by Eidos for the very first time in American history, mm -hmm. but it was an assertion that there is a particular ethnic identity associated with folks who are descendants of chattel slavery in the United States. And, I, and the phrase in the United States is critical because the relationship with between that descendant status and the provision of reparations makes it a direct claim on the United States government. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a claim that is unique to the descendants of persons who were denied the 40 acres. And that doesn't mean that other folks in the diaspora do not have reparations claims. Mm -hmm. But it does suggest that it would be a different kind of case that would have to be made if they were trying to make a reparations claim on the United States government. So the two countries of origin of your parents would suggest to me that there's an obvious claim that needs to be made on the United Kingdom mm -hmm. from those two countries. If, I'm good if, on taking their money too. Yeah. <laughs> and if, if somebody is from Haiti, instead of the fact that, they, that the French managed to coerce the Haitian government into paying reparations to France, the funds should go the other way. There should <laughs> be reparations that are be paid by France to Haiti and on and on. Nigeria, UK. If we're thinking about Rwanda and Burundi, 
I think the Belgians have a very, very large bill. So, yeah. So that's how I think about it. Uh, a criticism of that perspective might be, well, Darity, why are you focusing on the nation state as the object of reparations? And I think my response to that is that that's the world we're in. Maybe we would like to live in a world where the nation state wasn't the predominant entity of decision making, but that's the world we're in. And the particular kinds of damages that have been inflicted upon black folks in the diaspora do have both a generality and a specificity. Mm -hmm. And the specificity that's associated with the experiences of what occurred in the United States are what lay the foundation for the descendants of persons who did not receive the 40 acres to be the persons who received reparations from the U.S. government. It's interesting because you mentioned nation states, right? And one of the things I was thinking about was this difference between the nation states or making a specific claim to the United States, and then there are corporate entities, multinationals, that existed both in you know, the Dutch East India Company, <laughs> right? Right. And in all the rest of those types of organizations. And, and you can carry that same thought process through to now, right? So one of the things I kind of thought about and I jotted down in my notes is there's a case, I'm sure you've seen it, where the prime minister of Antigua and Barbuda is going after Harvard Law School, right? right? right. To say that, you know, Isaac Royal Jr. left land to Harvard, which then became Harvard Law, he was an Antiguan slaveholder and boom, reparations, right? right? Now they're making a claim on an entity that has existed within the United States, right? That's correct. So I'm curious, like, how do we parse through those sort of private entity claims within the nation state structure as well, right? Because yes. the slave trade was an international, you know, business, right? Yes, yes. So I'm curious about that thought process as well, if there is, has, so, if you thought about it. So I may be too legalistic about this, but my thinking is that the reason why slavery could be conducted in Antigua and Barbuda was because of the laws that were established by their colonizer. Mm -hmm. And so it is actually, you know, these individual organizations, operations, and institutions are hugely culpable, but they have an out. They can say that whatever they were doing was legal at that time. Mm -hmm. So my intention is to focus on the entities that created that legal environment. Mm -hmm. And so I would think that Antigua and Barbuda Antigua used to have the best cricket players in the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Antigua and Barbuda should actually be making their claim on the colonial power mm -hmm. that produced the environment in which slavery was illegal. And to that point, we talk about imagination, right? And right. one of the books that I find myself consistently coming back to is Faces at the Bottom of the Well by Derek Bell, and yep. which is Great throughout, but the as kind of a science fiction fantasy nerd guy, the space traders story right. is right. it's one that consistently comes back to me. And I'm gonna I'm gonna use this as a little bit of a bridge to Tani Haas's point okay. that was highlighted about Jim Crow, in that in the fictionalized story of the space traders, hate to give it away, spoiler alert, but the book's thirty plus years old, so 
read it. Yeah. Um, is you know, there, there's also a movie version. But I didn't even know that. Yeah, there's a movie version you can see on television. Uh, you can okay. you can obtain on, I, I think on YouTube. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, now yeah, I have yeah, something yeah. To, like, to look yeah, at. Yeah, yeah. But in this essay, extraterrestrial race comes down. They're going to solve a lot of the Earth's problems. I'm doing this very shorthand. Right. And Especially they, environmental problems. Yeah. Uh, and uh, all uh, they want in exchange for this is black people. Right. <laughs> right. So then the conversation becomes, should we, shouldn't we? No one knows what they're going to do with black people. It could be Nirvana. It could be an oven. No one knows. But they kind of ship us off. Right. And that's the end. End of story. And right. the, the conversation and why I tie this to this idea of Jim Crow is that as much as the reparation story should be and could be linked to this chattel slavery that existed within the United States, even those black people who came here voluntarily later did go through, depending on when they got here, obviously, some kind of right, parsing, right. they could have experienced the redlining. They could have experienced the lynching. They could have experienced the discriminatory practices that became so much of the linchpin of the argument that Tanahasi made, right? right? So I'm not saying that that's the Bible that we have to follow, but I'm wondering, you know, when the space aliens come, they're not going to make the distinction, right? They're just taking us all. And how do we... And, and our local police don't necessarily yeah, make the they distinction. they don't make that distinction either, right? Yeah. So in that environment where the distinctions aren't being made, how do we continue to have this conversation in a constructive way, right? Do you get what I'm saying, or am I? Did I go? No, no, no. No, I mean, I guess you're asking the question about to the extent that the Jim Crow period is part of the Bill of Particulars. Yeah. Then why don't we have a more inclusive standard for whom should receive reparations? You framed you framed that lovely. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for okay. fixing my rambling. So, so <laughs> I'm not necessarily, you know, the more I think about this, I'm not necessarily completely averse to more recent immigrants who experienced Jim Crow from receiving reparations. But it's a very small, small number of people mm-hmm. relative to the total black population. You know, prior to the mid-1960s, I believe the estimate is that about 1% of the American black population were folks who were from families that immigrated after the Civil War took place. And so, and these are folks who were concentrated almost exclusively in New York City and in Southern Florida. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's only after <laughs> okay, and it's only after the mid '60s that you have this significant growth in the presence of a black immigrant population, to the point where I think about 10 percent of the black population in the United States is now folks who are not descendants of chattel slavery in the United mm-hmm. States. So, so you know, one argument is it's just not a whole bunch of people. So if you want to throw them in the mix, okay. Uh, there's an uglier argument, though, that would support the case for their exclusion. Mm -hmm. And then there's a a more benign argument. But the the ugly argument is the question of how do you go about making a case for reparations for people who were voluntary immigrants to the United States, Mm -hmm. in contrast with the descendants of chattel slavery whose ancestors were clearly forcibly brought here brought here in chains, okay? That's the uglier question. Mm -hmm. The more benign question is, uh, you know, 
so what's the extent to which this claim for reparations is really anchored on the failure to provide the 40 acres by the U.S. government? Mm-hmm. And to the extent that that's an important anchor, then it's the descendants of the folks who were denied the 40 acres who should receive reparations. Those are the, you know, those are the kinds of questions or arguments or issues that I think come into play in this context. No, I mean, I think there's an incredible opportunity to, you know, really have a reimagined conversation of what's possible. And I think yourself and many others are having that conversation. And I think it's a valuable one because it is changing the discourse around resources, around really what we're going to build going forward. So I think it's very important. And even in places where there is pain in having these conversations, I understand where there's desperate politics, right? We're in a place where people feel constrained, but yet we can, we have the opportunity, I think, to move forward. So I'm not going to editorialize anymore. We've covered a lot, but also at the same time, barely scratched the surface on what I think is a lot of information. We have two segments that we always do on the show, like I told you. One of those is called Off the Dome where I kind of ask you some quick questions and kind of get your first thought on them. So I want to segue into that real quick. And these are hopefully painless, and I have three of them. Okay. All right? (laughs) I'll give it a shot. Here we go. (laughs) So I'm going to assume that you saw Black Panther. (laughs) I did. Okay. So T'Challa or Killmonger? Who had it right? Killmonger. Killmonger. Even though I'm a longtime fan of uh, the Black Panther comic books. <laughs> Team Killmonger. In the right. movie, it's Killmonger. Okay. <laughs> now, you have to introduce somebody to the world of science fiction, fantasy, speculative fiction, whatever you want to call it. You can pick Octavia Butler or N.K. Jemison to start. Octavia Butler. Okay. Although I do like M.K. Jefferson. Yeah, I, I love her too. But, you know, these, these, are meant, these are meant to give you some angst, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> and they are. <laughs> I'm going to give the classic argument. We've already mentioned Marcus Garvey already, but who had the most significant impact on our community theories? Booker T. Washington or W.E.B. Du Bois? Wow, that's a tough one. Because both of their influences are still quite evident. Uh, yep. Yeah. Very much so. <laughs> so the kind of self-helpism and the myths that we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. their persistence is linked to Booker T. Washington. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so while I prefer much of what Du Bois did, except for his eugenics moment, <laughs> I would have to say maybe Booker T. Washington's influence still lingers even more strongly. Okay. Yeah. That's awesome. See? Not pain, painless, right? <laughs> the last segment we have on the show is called The Drop, where, you know, we give our listeners something that they should check out, and it could be anything. I kind of give guests a very broad scope, which means I give them no scope at all. <laughs> so if you have a drop for our listeners, what would it be? Uh, that's a great question. I would urge people to read a trilogy of books. C.L.R. James's The Black Jacobins, Eric Williams's Capitalism and Slavery, and W.E.B. Du Bois's Black Reconstruction. I think those are kind of critical, critical volumes that every informed American should have read. 
See, I was going to cheat on a off the dome question and ask you about Du Bois's Black Reconstruction versus Eric Foner's Reconstruction, but yes. you kind of you kind of <laughs> answered it for me by suggesting well, Du Bois. Yeah, well you, well, you couldn't have Eric Foner's Reconstruction without having had W. B. Du Bois's Black Reconstruction. But you yeah. might as well tangle with the original first. <laughs> <laughs> well said, and those are great drops. I'm going to give my drop real quick, and it's also a book. So we're giving okay. our listeners a lot of books to read. Ursula K. Le Guin, who I love, The Lathe of Heaven. Yes. She published it in 1971. It's I love all her work, but this That's is a great book. Is one of my favorites from her. And it's not very long. It won't take you long to read it. (laughs) It's it's not a long book, but again, I'm really into this idea of reimagining what's possible. Well, what about The Left Hand of Darkness? I love that too, but I wanted to give just one. (laughs) Okay. okay. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going out with a lot of books for our listeners to check out, but this has been great and I appreciate you being on the show. Thank you, Phil. It's been fun. It's been a pleasure having Professor Sandy Darity join me on the deep dive. The challenges of the Black wealth gap and the historical and contextual case for reparations are topics that are rarely explored in traditional business circles. But connecting the dots in seemingly disconnected spaces is what the deep dive is all about. And I'm happy to have had this conversation with Professor Darity. Professor Darity's new book, From Here to Equality, will be released this spring via University of North Carolina Press. So please be on the lookout for that. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoying what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. Let us hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via Far Flung Phil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, Wherever you are in your life's journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.